Amen. Amen. Um, I joked online earlier this week, but it's funny to see Jonathan written in the bulletin. Um, no one calls me that except for my mom. Um, thankfully, not when I'm in trouble anymore. Um, but I always want to say, who's that again? Um, but it's a great privilege to be in front of you this morning to open God's word with you. Uh, that My work on campus with RUF um, often has me um, preaching in other churches on Sunday mornings in the Kansas City area and in Wichita. Um, I was grateful to wake up this morning and to be able to preach, um, but not have to drive a few hours to do so. Um, but I truly count it as a privilege to be in front of you, my home church. We miss you when we're not here. And it's a privilege to open God's word with you this morning. I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 2. We're considering this morning verses 1 through 21. Luke is one of four accounts that we have of the life of Jesus when he walked on the earth, as he lived, as he taught, as he healed, as he died, and as he rose again. Interestingly, though, uh, Luke is one, really one of only two of those four books that tell us much about the birth of Jesus. But as we consider this this morning, um, the first 21 verses of chapter 2, um, I want to tell you, it's, it's interesting for me as I get older to, to process our celebration of Christmas as a culture. Um, Christmas decorations go up around Halloween, sometimes before. Um, for, for many of us, that may seem out of place or even mildly inappropriate. We may get overwhelmed by the um, commercialization of Christmas. And yet one of the things that I reflect on often at this time of year is that what's happening there, what seems to be happening there, is that our world is trying to grasp the magnitude of something that it knows is significant, but that may or may not understand. So as a world, we throw time and energy and effort. We throw decorations exploding all over the place. We throw money and more money at this holiday. And while we may want to criticize that, I want us to remember this morning as we look at these events in Luke chapter 2, that it's our world striving to understand something that it doesn't understand. It's our world striving to appreciate events that indeed are overwhelming for the human mind. And yet it's doing its best to try to do that. So this morning I want us to consider these significant events themselves as we look together at Luke's telling of some of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. The early verses of Luke tell us that Luke set out, that Luke followed all these things closely, all the things that he'd read about Jesus, all the things that he'd heard, all the stories. He was, Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with him several times, we read in the book of Acts. But he set out to write an orderly account, which is Luke's way of telling you what, I, what he's telling us. is He's not just giving us a journal entry of how he's feeling on any day-to-day -day basis as he thinks about Jesus. But he set out to write an orderly account, a purposeful retelling of the life of Jesus, so that we might have confidence in who Jesus is. So I want to read for us from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. I encourage you to follow along if you have your Bibles with you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch by, of, over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as you did that night when the angels appeared to the shepherds, we pray that you would send out your light and send out your truth. Lead us, Father, we pray, to you, to the place where you dwell, that we might behold you through your word this morning and that we might be changed. We pray this because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, trusting in the presence of your Spirit leading us this morning. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. I want to jump right into the text this morning. And to do that, I want to set up a little bit of what Luke is about here in these, in these early verses of chapter 2, in these early verses of his Gospel. Writer George Martin, who's well known for writing the Game of Thrones books that have become a, a hit TV show, TV series, commented once in an interview how James J.R.R. Tolkien changed everything for people who wrote fantasy novels. Tolkien was the one who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and other books that may be familiar with you and not to nerd out to you too early this morning. But one of the things that Martin said about Tolkien was this. He said one of the things he did that was extraordinary was that he created Middle-earth in such detail. Before Tolkien, it was all in the style of fairy tales. Once upon a time, there was a king, and there was a land, and there was a princess. But Martin went on to say that what Tolkien did was create whole histories, whole languages, whole genealogies, things that would even never appear in the books themselves. And it seemed as real as England or France or Germany. Martin's reflecting on this, this seminal writer, his hero, if you will, to say he did something that nobody else had done before. That he created the world that he wrote in in such detail that he came up with things that, that the rest of us would never know about or never see, apart from unpublished notes being, being published post posthumously. But he went into such great detail that it felt as real as the world we live in. 
I want to start there as we consider Luke chapter 2 because that's what Luke is doing for us. With, of course, the important exception that what he's describing is not a fantasy world, but he's describing a very real world. And what Luke wants us to know initially in these early verses is this. He wants us to know that Jesus himself, the Son of God, the one promised to be born to Mary, entered into the world that you and I live in. Notice how he talks about Jesus' birth. Notice in particular the detail in these verses. He, he begins in the early verses in verses 1 to 3, talking about, of all things, the politics of the day. He mentions Caesar Augustus, um, who decreed, what decree went out from him in verse 1, that all, that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was considered by, by history as, as a great man because of what he accomplished. We can argue later whether he was a good man or not. But, but what history tells us is that he was a great man. He unified a disjointed Roman Empire that had been in internal struggle for probably 200 years or so. But he brought it together under, under familiar leadership and under singular leadership. In a politically savvy move, he even, made the, he even set aside having complete authoritarian kind of power, at least up front in what was visible, by, by, by establishing assemblies and other, other parts of his government where, so that power would be shared because he knew it was politically savvy. He'd been, in, he'd been reigning now for a, a several decades at the, at the point of these events happening. But Luke mentions him initially. And he mentions this decree that was made that all the world should be registered. And what that means, what Luke means, is all the inhabited world or the, the Roman world. Again, in a political move, Caesar makes this decree to take, a, take into account the whole of his kingdom, the whole of the realm, if you will, most likely for the purposes of taxation, to, to measure what it is that the income that they should be receiving to keep the, the, to keep the kingdom moving. Caesar was known by history as the one who established Roman peace, the Pax Romana, that made it safe for Roman citizens to travel throughout the expanded kingdom, throughout the expanded territory. He indeed was a great man. We also, we're also made aware then of, his, of, his, of the political decisions he's making. In verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. I'm going to come back to this, but it's interesting that Luke mentions not the one who is in charge of the land where Jesus was born, but the one who is in charge of Syria, the one to the east, Quirinius. He's placing Jesus on the historical map and on the political map. But then when we get to verse 4, he focuses our attention in an extremely personal way. Because as if talking about world events, we get to verse 4 and he says, but don't forget about Joseph and Mary, who we had brought up earlier in, this, in chapter 1 of Luke. He says, Joseph, as a part of this decree, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, where he had been living, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered. Joseph is doing his citizenly duty, the decree goes out to be registered, and so he goes to that place that is considered home for him and for his family. If you were paying attention, Annie read the significance of this town, because in Micah, the prophet, God had spoken to Micah to say in Bethlehem would be the one who would be coming, who would be born in that place. But, but Luke focuses her attention back on Joseph and Mary. In the midst of talking about world events, he says there was this man Joseph and his betrothed Mary, which means that they were legally pledged to be married. They had not yet become husband and wife. They were not yet officially Mr. and Mrs. Joseph. 
But for all intents and purposes, according to the law, they, they were married. For them to break up at this point would have needed a legal decree or a legal declaration. But Luke also reminds us about the biology at stake here in verses 6 and 7. Because Mary was with child. As God in the beginning of chapter 1 had promised to this, this young woman named Mary, she would give birth to a child. Though she had not yet known her husband, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, would come upon her and give her this child. And then we look at, look at verse 6. That while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And this is part of our world. It's biology. That there's, for most of us, there's roughly this nine-month span of time where the child is growing within the mom, and then it needs to come out. And then in verse 7, it, it gives even more detail. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. She did what a mother would do to a newborn child. She wrapped him tightly and carefully in, in clothing so that the child would be comforted, so that its limbs would be kept straight and safe. It would have been a signal to anybody that this was a newborn child. The detail is intentional. It places, places Jesus in this realm of politics, in the realm of people and their circumstances, in the realm of biology. And then we jump to the end of the portion that I read and we're, we're, remind, we're reminded that he also places Jesus in the, in the place of culture. Because at the end of eight eight days, verse 21 tells us, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. Jesus was born as a little Jewish boy. And the thing that Jewish parents did with little Jewish boys was when they were eight days old, because God had told their ancestors to do this, they were circumcised. Luke places Jesus in this realm of politics, of people, of biology, and of culture. Do these things sound familiar? Jesus was born into our world. Luke, you see, is making a historical claim. He's making this claim that the birth of Jesus is as real as the United States Civil War or the Panama Canal. That Jesus is as much a historical figure as is George Washington or Ulysses S. Grant or President Obama. Luke places him there. He's making a statement about both Jesus and about the world in which we live. That Jesus is a part of this world and that this world was part of shaping how Jesus lived his life on a daily basis from the place of birth. Politics, people, biology, culture are not insignificant things. But Luke is also making a, a very subtle, subtle theological claim. The word theology simply means the study of God. So when I say that Luke is making a theological claim, what I'm telling you is he's making a claim about who God is and how he interacts with the world in which we live. And the claim is this, that in the midst of political maneuverings, in the midst of crazy circumstances, which, is in, which includes being pregnant, in the midst of cultural baggage, Luke is telling us that God is at work. None of those things are enough to declare to any of us that God is absent from the world that he has made. Beloved, for you, your past matters. The circumstances in which, you, in which you find yourselves this morning are not insignificant as a part of who you are. But at the very same time, know that there is nothing that you are experiencing this morning, this past week, or this next week that is not apart from the work of God. And indeed, it is not apart from the presence of Jesus in those places. Jesus is present in your office. 
He's present in your homes. He's present in your classrooms. He's present in the library. He's present at the gas station. He's present at the grocery store. He's present, he's present on the soccer field or in the basketball court. Jesus is present. And Jesus is at work. You see, when He enters this world, He places Himself as a part of this world. There's something else I want you to see in these, in these verses as we continue. You see, because as Jesus enters this world, what he does by his very presence is he orients this world around him when we would want to orient it around ourselves. Let me, let me give you a picture of what I mean before we look back again at the text. If you remember Star Wars Episode Four, which for some of us is, will forever be known as the first Star Wars movie, we meet Luke Skywalker living on a farm with his aunt and uncle. He's been given a story about, about what happened to his parents. And he's, he's got a job that he doesn't like and, he, and living on a planet that seems boring and unimportant and insignificant. And these two droids land in his family's possession. And there's a message from a beautiful princess. That's, and part of that message is, help us, Obi-Wan, your only hope. And Luke has this thought, Obi-Wan, I wonder if he's, she's talking about Ben. And he asks his aunt and uncle and they dismiss his question pretty quickly. And as the movie progresses, this is not a spoiler alert. I'm, I don't need a spoiler alert, I hope. But as the movie progresses, he meets this old man wandering in the desert who takes care of him after he's been beaten up by the sand troopers. And he looks at him and he says, you're Ben. He says, do you, do you know Obi-Wan? And Ben's response is, well, of course I do. I'm he. He's me. And that changes everything about Luke's story. And as the story unfolds, the adventure begins at that point. Because Ben fills in the gaps that Luke doesn't have. Your father didn't die the way that your aunt and uncle told you, Luke. He was a great Jedi. He was a great pilot. We fought in the Clone Wars together and all the rest that comes with that. But the adventure begins when Luke is, has to, can stop speculating about who Ben Kenobi is or who this Obi-Wan is. And he meets him face to face and asks him the questions directly. And gets the answers and then they go off into the galaxy and the whole, the whole fun ensues. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 2. Because God himself sends his son, the one who the people have been waiting for, the one about whom people have been speculating for hundreds of years. And it refocuses the attention of God's people. Notice how he does it. Notice in particular how what this says about the, our view of God. If you look at beginning in verse 10, as the angels appear to shepherds in the fields, we're going to come back to the shepherds in a second. But in verse 10, the message of the angels is, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. That word Christ means is, trans, is a translation of the word Messiah. The one that God's people have been waiting for for centuries. The pronouncement of the angels is, He is here. There's no more speculation. There's no more guesswork. Because you will go see him momentarily. He is present. But the reorientation comes at the beginning of verse 10. The message of the angels is, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It's interesting, isn't it, that the first words out of the angel's mouth have to be, Fear not. The shepherds are in the fields at night. There's no, there are no street lights around. They may have a small fire built to keep warm by and to cook, cook their meals by, but that, that's it. It's dark in a way that we probably don't understand darkness, aside from the light of the stars. And yet when the angel appears, the, first, the response of the shepherds is, 
fear. And he said, and the angel says, fear not. And what he has, the, the reorientation is that the message of the gospel, the message of the, that God has for his people is not one that you should be afraid. The message is I bring you good news of great joy because the Messiah is here. The message of the gospel, the message of Christianity is indeed one of good news, of great joy. He, in, in fact, if you hear the, the song of the angels in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the peace we talk about every Sunday. It is the peace with God and is the promise of peace with one another. That though we are God's enemies, though we, we war against one another, the promise of God for his people is that of peace. But jump down to verse 15 and 16 and notice what we have there. The, 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 the other part of this reorientation is it comes in the response of the shepherds. What do they say in verse 15? Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. You see, the reorientation for them is that this news that has been proclaimed to them, when their initial response was that of fear, they now want to go see it. They don't say, we better not go check that out. We don't want to mess with the sleeping baby. We don't want to make mom and dad mad. We don't want to mess with the order of things. No, they want to be there. It is something that they, to which they are drawn to be present at. They grasp in their way the significance of these events. This is a reorientation of religion for us. Fear not. It is good news of great joy. And they're drawn to it. But the other thing, the other reorientation that happens in these verses is the reorientation of community. Look back in verse 8. Luke tells us that in the same region where Mary and Joseph found themselves, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. By historical accounts, shepherds were relatively, quote-unquote, insignificant individuals. They would not have been highly educated. They would not have been wealthy. And the fact that these shepherds are out at night probably tells you that they're either the newbies in the work, the work schedule or they're simply that they can get no other work because who wants to be out on a cold night watching a bunch of sheep? But that's where they find themselves. But it is these men to whom the good news of great joy is first brought. That when the baby is born, the announcement goes out to these shepherds out in the field whom little few people in the town would have respected though they know that they needed them. When my children were born, I didn't want to go find the fast food worker in the middle of the night to tell them that I had kids. I wanted to call my parents. I wanted to call my wife's parents. I wanted to call my siblings. I wanted to call the church secretary so that she could let everybody else know that, we, that our kids were born. The natural response is not to do what was done here. But what happens is that those, of the, those in the lowest place of society are given dignity. Because they are given the announcement that the Son of God has been born to this woman and it will change everything. This, beloved, is the reorientation of community. They are not the men of privilege. They are not the men of status. They are not the men of influence. But it is those to whom God chose to send the angels to make this announcement. But notice the other part of this, this reorientation of community that shows up in verse 14, or in, um, sorry, in verse 11. No, verse 12. Wait, where am I lost? Lost my place. Shoot. Hang on, I'm going to find it. I'll get there. Um, oh, there, there it is. Yeah, at the end of verse 10. I was, just wasn't looking back far enough. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
Luke has in view here, the angels have in view here, the spread of the gospel throughout the world. It's part of the reason that, 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 August, that Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are mentioned instead of Herod the Great who is ruling over this region. It's because Luke has in view that this, the message of Jesus, this message of the gospel, is not only for those who are insignificant, but is for those who are spread throughout the world. This is the reorientation of the gospel. As Jesus shows up into your world, into your place of work, and into your family, and into your studies, how do you view God? Do you only know God by fear? Is God for you the one telling you, only telling you how to live? And does he have you in a place in your mind of holding you over a barrel waiting for you to screw up? That's not the God that's pictured by in this announcement. Because it is an announcement of good news, of great joy, because the Savior has come. The Savior who would live and die and rise again for those sins. For your inability to obey. For your inability to follow in line. For your inability to get things right. He reorients us. When we want to only be afraid, He says there's good news. There's joy for you. Is your faith something that, that you're drawn to, that other people are drawn to? Is church something to which you are drawn? Is the life of, of following after Jesus something that is beautiful to you, that is attractive to you? Or is it something that you do begrudgingly? Is it something that you do only out of habit because you don't want to get in trouble? The picture of this announcement, the news that we hear in these verses is not that. The news we hear is that it's, that it's attractive, that they're drawn to Jesus. If you're not drawn to Jesus, you may be worshiping the wrong Jesus because of how he's pictured in Scripture. But I also want to ask you this morning, how do you view other people? Are there insignificant people around you? In other words, are there people that you aren't willing to give time or account to? Are there people around you that you won't look in the eye because they're beneath you? Are there people that don't seem to matter in your life? Now look, I'm not trying to say that you have to account for every individual in Manhattan. You don't. That's, that's not realistic. That's not making us be human. I'm talking though about the people in your life on a daily basis. The people with whom you come into contact, the people who serve you, the people who wait on you, the people who get things for you, the people you sit next to, the people you work next to, the people you see at the park, the people you see at the grocery store. Do those people matter to you? Luke is telling us, the angels are telling us, there are no insignificant people. Jesus enters our world and he shapes our world. He shapes our view of God and he shapes our view of each other. It's what the gospel is. And so I ask you, finally, what is your response? What was the response of the shepherds in, the, in verses 15 to 21? Notice, we've talked about this already some, but notice what they do. They say in verse 15, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. They're, they're drawn in. They, they want to they see for themselves what has just been described to them. And then into verse 16, it says that they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And Luke tells us again at the beginning of verse 17, when they saw it, 
He repeats it, that, that they're actually beholding something. They're seeing something. But when they saw it, what do they do in verse 17? They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And what's interesting is that they're not just telling Mary and Joseph, though they're telling Mary and Joseph, look, we, we're here because we were told to come here. We were told you would be here. And we're here to see for ourselves. But verse 18 seems to say that they were telling more than just Mary and Joseph. That they had the message about Jesus for all who would listen. It says in verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. And what's the response? Mary treasured these things up in her heart in verse 19. And in verse 20 it says that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told them. You see, the shepherds saw Jesus, they made him known, and they worshipped. What's your response to Jesus? Beloved, where this leaves you and me is this. As, as one writer and thinker has said recently, we live in a very flat world. We live in a world where most days it feels like in our day-to-day -day existence we're left to ourselves. We're left to find the answers to ourselves or in one another. So we ask our peers, we ask our parents, we ask our siblings, we ask anybody who will answer our questions. And it often feels like that's the extent of our world. For the big questions and for the little questions, our world seems very flat. The message of Christmas, the message of Luke 2, is that the world is not flat. Because Jesus has entered into it and he's oriented it. And the call for you and me this morning is to take a look at Jesus again. And to look at him again and again and again. Because every time we look at him through his word, we will see new things. We will see him differently. And it will affect us differently. And it will continue to shape us time and again. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist pastor from the 1800s, wrote this in one of his devotionals. He said, we shall never find our happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. You can look at your prayers, you can look at your ability to obey, and that we certainly need to do that at times. But Spurgeon's point is this, those, focusing our attention on the flatness of our world, on those things, on our ability to respond to this, will not leave us at a place of rest. The thing that will leave us at a place of rest is to look at Jesus. To see, to hear the song of the angels. To hear history unfold before our eyes. To know that he has entered into the world in which we live. And that he's changing everything. Beloved, let's look to Jesus together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look to you this morning again in prayer and ask that you would be near. That you would lead us forward as your people. Father, in the midst of a world that is filling our attentions with many things which are good and many things which are unnecessary, we pray that in the midst of all of it, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our struggle, and in the midst of our joys, that we would see you more clearly. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.